Welcome to another episode of Suburban Connections. If this is your first time with us, my name is Megan. I'm a graduate urban planning student and professional in the Southern California area. I'm joined by my co-hosts. Danny. I'm George. Hi, I'm Mary. So for this episode, I wanna take the time to zoom in on the Inland Empire and discuss how the forces of warehousing have shaped it. To help orient those less familiar with the region, the Inland Empire generally consists of the Riverside County and San Bernardino County and is now a major shipping hub in Southern California and for the rest of the U.S. And of course, we would be remiss not to discuss the area's original residents uh, when giving you a little bit of context about the region. So the Inland Empire, like much of California, was first home to native peoples uh, for thousands of years before any Spanish or American colonists came in. Um, one of the notable tribes of the area are the Cahuilla people. And like many others, they were heavily displaced uh, from their traditional lands following the gold rush of the 1850s. Um, and this event gave way to an agricultural, you know, land-based economy uh, in the Inland Empire which served as the backbone for a lot of the cities that exist there today. Uh, but the Cahuilla people today, uh, they do serve as an important economic contributor in this region. Um, I think a lot of us have heard of the Morongo Band of Mission Indians. Uh, they are largely made up of Cahuilla people and they operate one of the most successful gaming operations in the US. Um, but in terms of the situation today in the Inland Empire, um, regarding warehouses specifically. Uh, it's almost like the whole region hitched their wagon to warehousing um, as a, 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 you know, a source of economic revenue. Um, and largely this shift happened from an agricultural economy to this warehousing economy uh, around the 2008 recession. Uh, many communities were sold on the idea that warehousing and logistics would provide them a direct route to the middle class. But um, as can be seen today, that is largely not the case. Yeah, the IE now is largely defined by this rapid expansion of warehouses in tandem with the skyrocketing success of the e-commerce industry. The IE is situated as the core of the logistic logistics industry in Southern California, while at the same time, it is a region and a phenomenon that is largely ignored. However, it needs our attention as planners and community advocates because warehouses and distribution centers are a major source of greenhouse gas, which is directly hurting the health of the marginalized communities living nearby. Yeah, I watched an interview of a woman who grew up in Redlands after her father moved here from Mexico. Um, when she was young, the area was filled with citrus groves and palm trees. And she talks about how now instead of growing citruses, their city grows warehouses. Um, so she acknowledges that the warehouses do provide jobs, but she states that they are not sustainable jobs and they cannot replace or make up for the land that was lost. Um, and with the excess pollution from these warehouses and commercial vehicles and the eyesores that they are, the residents are sad to see their hometowns end up like this, yet they feel as though they have no say in the matter. 
And all of this warehousing, um, it's, it's the largest concentration of warehouses on Earth. Um, so, of course, there is the perpetuation of social, economic, and environmental inequalities that goes along with that. For example, the air pollution in the IE um, is recognized as some of the worst in the country. Like we had mentioned in one of our previous episodes, commercial trucking contributes a lot more towards air pollution than regular commuter traffic. Um, so given the concentration of truck emissions, coupled with a physical geography, the topography of the area that boxes in or creates smog, it's going to lead to some undeniable environmental justice issues. Um, and the thing is, this can be tied directly to the warehousing boom of the late 2000s. All you have to do is look at some maps of asthma attacks in relation to the warehousing concentration of the area at the time. Um, and a lot of this has to do with the transportation infrastructure uh, that was set up on what was relatively inexpensive land and you know, do that over a large spread of land and suddenly you have a major shipping hub for the region and for the country, frankly. So what are the ramifications of these warehouses on the surrounding area? I worry that policymakers are getting so caught up in the possibilities of road pricing for single occupancy vehicles that they're forgetting the impacts that delivery trucks and 18-wheelers have on our roads. They're massive overweight vehicles that have major impacts for local roads. And we have to look into the high density of warehouses in the IE to blame for the shipping um, presence. Who is bearing that financial burden of maintaining this transportation infrastructure and what externalities are not being accounted for, especially by the companies who can afford it? Right. And, you know, I think cities in this region, they took a gamble uh, with choosing or encouraging warehousing as their primary economic sector. And they now have to reckon with that choice, which it's not to say that these communities should communities should accept the horrible working conditions and environmental effects that are being imposed on them. Uh, but on the contrary, uh, they, and by they, I mean local officials, they need to acknowledge that this is a problem, that this kind of development has led to these inequalities and they need to work towards a solution. It's not an impossible hole to climb out of. I mean, just look at how we transitioned away from coal, for example. Um, obviously, there's still remnants of it, uh, but I mean, as a society and kind of as the globe, uh, we have transitioned from this dirty, polluting um, energy source to something that's that's not so much. Uh, but it's going to take uh, local leaders stepping up and making decisions that benefit their constituents and not the not just the developers that are lining their pockets. I think that the main question then would be like, do the local officials even see this as an issue um, if they are getting paid, if the city is getting paid? Like we've right. seen time and time again, local leaders ignoring the needs of the marginalized communities in favor of developers. So how can these leaders be convinced that there is a real problem here? Well, there, the presence of so many city governments within the, in, within the Inland Empire, because remember, we're talking not only Riverside County, but San Bernardino County, and depending on how you define it, define the Inland Empire, it could include the Coachella Valley and the high desert with Victorville and Apple Valley. I mean, it is an expansive area with many different municipalities and governments, which often have different visions for their own 
little area, meaning that two cities in the region rarely agree on a solution. And just as common, they have unequal means for implementing one, even if they were to agree on it. So having no region-wide governmental planning organization is, is appearing to undermine any solution that could be proposed. There is this fast pace at which development occurs versus the limited ability of governments to respond to changes, especially with how disconnected they are in the Inland Empire, which means it could easily take years, if not decades, for a viable solution such as new roads, transit system, or pollution controls to go effect in the existing system, which this obstacle also presents an opportunity for advocacy. You know, communities in the IE have the option and ability to campaign for a regional governing board to help mitigate these impacts that they're experiencing as a direct result from the e-commerce industry. So what are some of our options to mitigate these impacts? Well, I think local planning and local planning practices have a huge impact on warehousing development and thus the distribution of warehousing related externalities such as the air pollution, the poor quality of jobs, the destruction of like that local community feel. Decisions made by local planners and the Inland Empire directly shape that region through land use planning policies, job related policies, those financial incentives and disincentives and environmental regulations that planners all have a hand in. And that all adds up to the spatial disparities seen in the region. So if we don't step up and start making, you know, decisions based off of inclusion and equality, the, our current practices can continue us down this road that we're seeing in the Inland Empire that's hurting communities. And it is crucial to focus on the in, Inland Empire because unless the rules are shifted, adjusted, adapted, evolved, the demand is going to continue to drive the development with no real restrictions. So we need to talk about this and bring it to the attention and empower communities to advocate. Yeah, something that was just really telling of kind of where our society is at with these warehouses um, is I actually, to prepare for this question, I had Googled um, how to mitigate warehouse impacts. <laughs> and one of the results, or actually a majority of, of the results said, ways to reduce warehouse costs and increase profits. So I just thought that that was really <laughs> telling about, you know, how our society currently feels about warehouses and capitalism and all that stuff. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff to be done. <laughs> Yeah, so step number one sounds like don't live in a capitalist society, pretty much. <laughs> but hey, uh, we are just a bunch of planning students and young professionals. Um, so the most important kind of perspective that we can have um, is from somebody that is on the inside. Um, so with that being said, we have an interview with a special guest that can provide that perspective for us. Um, so stay tuned.
Hello, welcome. Here at Suburban Connections, we are all about creating a dialogue about the urban landscape and how we as planners and community members can have an active role in shaping our cities. There is no better way than to share lived experiences with each other. And for today's episode about the Inland Empire and warehouses, we have a special guest that will be talking with their experiences working in Amazon Warehouse. Tell us a little bit about your background. Thank you. Uh, no problem. Thanks for having me. So yeah, I've worked for Amazon for a little over three years. And I grew up in Inland Empire pretty much my entire life. And I currently uh, am a graduate student, actually, uh, here in, in the region. And yeah, what, what could I say, honestly, about Amazon is I go on and on about it. There's so many things to say. So you, you had mentioned that you grew up in the region. So I'm sure you saw kind of the evolution of the Inland Empire a little bit with all of the warehousing coming in and, and things like that. Oh uh, yeah. So growing up here, I moved here and I think when I was in the early 90s when I was about 3 or 4. So this is pretty much where I spent my entire life as a, as a child growing up. And I remember coming out towards like Redlands, San Bernardino, more so from like the Hemet area. And it used to just be nothing but citrus groves, like oranges and lemons and Really, it was a matter of just a, just a few years after the recession hit that all that land that was more or less just owned by various citrus suppliers got bought up and then they just started building a bunch of warehouses and it was just block after block after block of warehouses being put in. And the first company that moved in was Walmart. That was probably the one that took the biggest hold in the region. And, and then there was, of course, Stater Brothers, um, you know, pretty much born in the Inland Empire. And then you have Amazon come through in about 2012. And from that point on, it just, it just exploded. And now there's probably over, I would say, at least 20 facilities between Riverside and San Bernardino County. So in your opinion, what are some of the biggest problems communities face because of Amazon? Um, I would say probably the biggest problem is pollution. Amazon has hundreds of trucks a day that come into the region. Uh, they also have a lot of railroad freight that comes in. And as a result of that, there's a lot of air pollution and it contributes to actually some of the worst air pollution in the entire country. Aside from that, I would say is Amazon's also the region's, um, I guess you say the, 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 the region's private employer that employs the most people of anybody and they don't pay living wages to their employees. And so when you have, you know, hundreds, thousands of people that work for this company, and, and honestly, at this point, you could say that people at least know one person who's worked for this company since 2012. And when you have a, a mix of, you know, not a lot of opportunities, um, I just call it exploitation as well, because it's mm -hmm. predominantly a, 
community of like Latinos and uh, African Americans, um, mostly like working class people, like lower middle class, you know, having only one resource for, for employment. And that one resource doesn't provide enough to own a home or really live a comfortable life. It's a, it's a big problem when, you know, the majority of people who live here can't afford to live here. Uh, would you be able to tell us a little bit about what your facility is like? So my facility is primarily a forklift facility. There's different types. There's about like five or six different types of facilities. Mine's considered a non-sort. So more or less what that means is it comes in and then it goes out directly to the customers or it goes to another facility in which it gets shipped out somewhere else in the country. Um, we have an inbound department. Um, pretty much what they do is they bring all the merchandise into the warehouse. They stock it on the shelves. And then you have the outbound department and they're the ones that pick it. They pack it into the boxes. And then there's also the ones that then load it onto the trucks and send it out. My facility is not um, your typical Amazon facility. It's not ones where they can easily employ like over 4,000 people sometimes. Mine's actually a smaller size facility. It's about 700 people there. But it has 24-7 um, um, work happening. You have people that work night shifts, people that work day shifts, and there's like five different shifts per shift, and there's other like specialized shifts in between those two. So there really is never a time that the facility is not open. It runs 24-7, almost, almost 365 days a year. I see. Um, does Amazon offer any programs for college or career advancement? Uh, they do. Uh, the, it's on the condition if you work there for one year, they will, they will actually pay ninety five percent of your education. But it's on the conditions that it's something that can generally help the company, whether it's medic medical stuff like EMT, um, being a nurse or a truck driver or IT. Something that in some way could potentially connect back to Amazon, but they do try to go beyond that too. I mean, they're not going to cover your degree if you want to be a veterinarian necessarily, <laughs> but uh, they will cover at least 95% on some things. But the funny thing about it is they say you have to work there for a year, but again, getting back to the, the poor wages that they pay. You don't actually need to work for Amazon for a year for them to pay for college. This is more of a jab at them when I say this is because of the low wages that they pay you, you could actually qualify for financial aid and get 100% of your tuition paid for mm -hmm. and potentially even a, a graduate degree if you wanted to because technically according to the federal government standards for what qualifies you as financial aid um, is Amazon pays poverty wages. So yes, they do help you pay for college, but you don't need to work for them for a year to get that. 
Before COVID, do you believe that Amazon was a safe place to work for? I thought it was safe for like the first year. Um, I kind of had that honeymoon period where I thought like, oh, this is a, you know, this is like one of the leading companies right now. Like, it's crazy. Like Amazon's in the Inland Empire. Who would have thought? And, you know, when I first started, I had a bachelor's degree and I saw that they were you know, willingly like trying to promote people who had college degrees into manager roles and I thought oh, this is great like you know they got advancement programs when I first started here though my it was also the first year that the building was open and safety was generally pretty good but by the second year that's when things kind of took a turn and things got really really questionable in terms of whether or not some of the things that they were doing should actually be allowed, even like according to OSHA, where we're talking, you know, the shelves where the merchandise was stocked on, the boxes were sticking out so far that you had, unfortunately, at some times, no choice but to actually run into them with a forklift. Sometimes you just didn't even know it was there. And there'd be times where the forklifts would almost tip over because it was, you know, you're going full speed. And the next thing you know, you, know, you just full force right into a box and then the box practically stops you. I mean, you're not going that fast to begin with, but it's fast enough where if you have enough momentum and you're at the right angle, you, tech, you could potentially tip. And so that, the second year... Um, you know, I and my coworkers, some of us were calling management out and saying, like, hey, you guys got to do something. Like, people are going to get hurt. Um, if we don't, you know, we're going we're gonna to tip over or something's going to fall and something's gonna, and it's going to fall on somebody who's not expecting it. And I actually had a manager at one point tell me this. He's like, well, people wouldn't go to work if they, if they didn't feel safe. And I was like, wait, what? That doesn't make any sense. Like, People don't go to work because they feel safe. Like, They go to work because they need a paycheck. Like, They're not there for safety. And right. so it was with that that kind of, kind of made me realize that it's not as safe as it should be. And about a year ago, there was actually an article that came out by reveal.org it's like a investigative journalism organization and they did a study with OSHA records for various Amazons around the country and they found that the rates of injury in an Amazon facility and this is talking like warehousing industry um, is twice the national average. So your, your average for warehousing is for out of every hundred people that work there, about four, four and a half people will get seriously injured. At Amazon's, it was about 9.2, 9.4, if I remember correctly, with what the, uh, the, uh, the journalism found out from looking at OSHA records. But that's, that's only like just one type of facility. That's your that'd be a facility like mine, for example. 
Now, if you look at robotics, robotics, you would think, would be a safer facility because you know, you're not doing as much as robots doing the work for you. There's not as much lifting you have to do. But they found out that robot robotic facilities, it was actually almost five times the national average for uh, safety incidents. So they were averaging about a little over 22 people for every 100 get seriously injured. And when I say seriously injured, that's like uh, back injuries, broken bones, sprains, fractures, those kinds of injuries. And those numbers that you were giving, was that was that an annual number or? That was an annual number, yeah. Annual, okay. Yeah, I remember listening to an NPR story. I think they were talking about what Reveal found and there was an incident I believe in an Inland Empire facility where there was a gas leak and there were robots flying around the warehouse and the firefighters were trying to get in to shut off the gas and they refused to turn the robots off. So the firefighters weren't just having to deal with this emergency situation, but they were literally fighting robots. And Amazon was telling people, yeah, they can evacuate, but they would have to use their like specific time off in order to be evacuated and like people were dropping because of how bad the gas leak was. And it was just horrific hearing that story and knowing that that was in basically my backyard. Uh, yeah, that was the, the East Bell facility off the 15 freeway. That's one of your facilities where it's like maybe three plus thousand people. It's four floors and and yeah, it's robotics. and I mean, they, they've had their own host of problems even just during COVID-19 at the moment, so yeah, it's an ongoing struggle. Well, speaking of COVID-19, do you get COVID-19 case reports at Amazon? And if so, how many have you had and like, what's the frequency? Um, yes, I do actually. We just had one reported yesterday. And Oof. it depends honestly, like how the pandemic's playing out at the time kind of runs hand in hand with what's happening out in the community as well. Like the cases on average being reported. At this point though, I think we probably have had close to 50, 60 cases since April. Um, we've had them as frequent as about four a week and, and about as infrequent as like one every two weeks. And the way they report it to us and the way they track it and inform people who might have come into contact um, could be a little bit better. So they tell us when the person's last day on site was when they worked. And they say also what day they were confirmed with COVID, but they don't say whether it was on the day shift, whether it was the night shift what department they came from. So you really have no idea, even if you did come into contact with them, even for like a brief moment. And the way they, the way they would reach out to somebody who may have come into contact with somebody who was uh, COVID positive is they would have had to have been six feet or less in distance from them for a period of 15 minutes or longer. Now I've had coworkers who 
who know some of the people who did test positive, and they weren't informed that they might be potentially um, positive as well, even though they knew full well that they were working most of the day next to those people. So the contact tracing really isn't as good as it could be. I mean, I'll, I'll give the I'll give the company this. Like, they do try their best to to make things a little safer. You know, they they provide masks when people walk in the door. They have hand sanitizer everywhere, additional hand washing stations, stuff to clean your workstation, stuff to clean your you know your forklift if you're driving that. But you know, you can only do so much because. Not only is the virus airborne, it's also from surface contact. And easily, you're touching, you know, like a hundred plus different things a day that every somebody before you has touched and somebody after you will touch. So to actually really effectively contact trace, and just on the regard of just surface contact, it's impossible. Beyond the contact tracing, are there any other measures that you believe Amazon should take to keep workers and communities safe? What I think they should do, and they still have not done this yet, but it's been, it's actually been a demand of the Amazonians Unite Inland Empire organizing group, is the company should close the facility at least, we argue at least two weeks. But I say if you, at least at least two or three days. If you have a positive case, close the facility for like two or three days, and go in there and you know, de like sanitize everything, because you could have somebody who tests positive, and then you're having to figure out okay, what did those people touch, and to actually effectively get in there and clean everything, it's impossible. So. I think if they could at least close the site and pay the employees their full pay, that's not our fault. At least pay us our full pay, close the site for at least two or three days, and just sanitize everything. And then have everybody, you know, do a test to see if they're positive. Would you say proactivity and things like that are, are in the nature of the work culture at Amazon, or how would you describe the work culture? Could you repeat the question? Uh, so things like um, what you were mentioning in, in terms of, um, you know, that they're providing hand washing stations and, and uh, limited PPE and things like that. Is that coming from a place where uh, looking out for the employee, at least in that limited aspect, is in the nature of Amazon's work culture? Um, or how, how else would you describe Amazon's work culture? At least in your experience, hmm. I guess with 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 COVID, they're 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 tr they they you know they try to follow the CDC guidelines. They 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 you know they make mandatory mask wearing, um, but that in itself is an issue. So you can say okay, wear your mask, but to actually wear it properly, that's a whole another a whole other struggle. Oh, or yeah. you could wear it more like a chin strap and they don't say anything. Mm. And 
So that in itself is a problem. Uh, they do try in ways to more so uh, get people to do social distancing. You know, they'll, if they see people standing too close, they'll say, hey, six feet apart. Um, another thing that they do, and this is almost feels like like living in the novel 1984, um, they will have cameras and TV screens in walkways and in the break room. And pretty much what it'll be, what it'll be is as you're walking, you'll see a circle around you, like a, a green or a red circle on the floor. And what the circle's saying is, that's your six foot boundary. If your circle's green, then you're not too close to somebody. But if your circles like touch each other, or if it turns red, then you're not six feet apart. And so what it's effectively doing is saying, it's like, we're not always around, but we're always watching you. And so it's basically constant surveillance to make sure that we're not getting too close and honestly, it's also very effective to keep people from talking about what, you know, they feel is wrong and could be improved. So it kind of limits the chances of organizing if you can't actually sit down and talk to people. Honestly, it sounds more like they're looking out for their own company rather than their employees. Like they're trying to not get themselves in trouble. So they try their best to follow the guidelines, but it's not a genuine um like interest in the employees health and safety mm -hmm. very much uh, so how long do people usually work for amazon uh not not long they tend to have a pretty high turnover rate people on average will probably last about uh six to eight months and you know, either they'll 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 transfer, they'll just entirely quit Amazon. Sometimes they get promoted. Most of the time, people just don't last. Um, and kind of getting back to to Jorge's question about the, um, the the culture is Amazon has this just in time kind of logistics that honestly came from Walmart originally. And what it is, is counting how productive you can be down to the second. And everything's on a rate. You're always tracked, even though you're not actually um, physically observed by somebody watching you. Because you, you're always connected to a scanner, which you're signed into your own login. So it, they know who's using it. And so... You know, as you're working, the scanner will be there in front of you and, and you can check, well, what's my rate? And it'll also tell you like, oh, you have 15 seconds to pick the next item or pack the next item so you can stay on task. And it's kind of like a constant subtle reminder of go, 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 because everything is like, you, know, you got to get it same day or next day, two days max at most for delivery to the customers and so uh it's the work culture is very fast and they if you can't keep up then 
that's pretty much on you if you don't. How would you say Amazon's wage and benefits package is? Hmm. Wages could be better. Uh, ideally, if we're just talking realistically with living wage, we should be getting paid like $22 an hour. That's what it costs in the Inland Empire. At the bare minimum, just to have living wage. Amazon starts at $15, which I give them, yeah, it's better than like the industry's average. That's non-union though. I mean, union wages can start like 25 or higher easily. But like in terms of warehousing and even just general employers in the region, Amazon, they are beating the competition for the most part. There's, you know, there's different companies, of course, that'll, that'll pay like 18 or 20 or something like that. But it's not really, I guess you think of it in long term, getting paid $15 to start, and then you cap at like 1675 after three years, unless you move up, is not realistic to long term um, employment, which again, high turnover because like, well, I could find something better potentially. A lot of times people end up just coming back because it it pays better than a lot of other places. But this isn't so much just an Amazon problem. It's it's just more of a systemic problem. It's it's you know, our our standard of our standard wages, even just federally speaking, should really be adjusted nationally and regionally and so amazon's just kind of making bank off exploitation of people and the system that they have to work within allows them to do so even though the the system saying hey you got to pay 15 you know that's not enough it's like well why is the state minimum wage less than 15 and now they're telling them to pay more so it's it's bigger than amazon it's a systemic problem Amazon just benefits from. Podcasting is is an audio medium, but visually, I think everybody was nodding their head <laughs> along with what you were saying. It, that that definitely resonates here with uh, with our co-hosts. A hundred percent. But is there any way that Amazon, you know, does anything extra for the employees, like employee appreciation? Is that incorporated into yeah, the work they culture do have there? Different things that they do, like under normal circumstances, when it's not, you know, when when we're not living through COVID nineteen, they do monthly birthday roundtables. So what they'll do is, you know, you'll get to, you know, they'll they'll, they'll pretty much provide you desserts and you have a chance to sit down with the managers and bring up any issues, any, you know, um, positive or negative, just feedback, how they could do things better. And that has been productive. And sometimes where we did see things come out of it. Um, another thing they'll do is where you can sit down um, and they'll, they'll randomly pick employees and you can sit with managers and they'll just ask you like, so how are things going? You know, what do you think about the processes? What do you think about the job? What do you think could be improved? What can... And 
before COVID, like, yeah, they would actually ask us for feedback. Honestly, it felt very tokenistic a lot of the times. But nonetheless, it was something that gave us an opportunity to express our our issues. And when you have enough people actually saying all the same thing, the company eventually does react and try to make a difference. So you did see some things change throughout your, your time working there? Yeah, like we complained enough about the the aisles and the the products falling out into the into the the aisles, and eventually they created a whole new policy where now that it's not it's not really possible anymore for that to be an issue. So, mm. so obviously things are different right now given the pandemic. But what's what's a normal day in the life look like? either during normal season or peak season? Um, I would say during normal periods of time, it's actually a really nice sense of community with coworkers. Uh, people, you know, form genuine friendships. Um, people actually do enjoy working together and spending time together. And we'll just have their own, you know, potlucks. We'll just have department potlucks and people will bring food. Um, there'll be times where, you know, people, you know, like, I don't know, they'll go to a movie or they'll, they'll go out and, you know, do something fun. There'll, there'll be, like, morning stand-up meetings where you get to, you know, hear what's going on for the day and, and you can chat with everybody. You talk with your managers and there's a sense of camaraderie you can yeah, you can create and then you can feel that's genuine. Mm. And, you know, there'll be different events throughout the season where they'll have like, you know, they'll, they'll give you dinners, they'll give you lunches, they'll give you snacks and stuff. And that more or less has kind of, kind of come to a halt. They still do little things here and there, but because of COVID, everything's so distanced. Every, it just feels really disconnected. But before COVID, yeah, it was a great sense of community. And it it was like, it was really fun to actually go to, go to work and, you know, be excited to see your coworkers and, and interact with them and joke around. And, um, but now it's, everybody just kind of keeps their distance. People still try to, you know, have that sense of community, but Again, if managers see you getting too close, even if you're out in the parking lot, they'll be like, hey, six feet apart. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of difficult nowadays to have that same sense of community. Can you share with us one of your most memorable experiences from working at Amazon, whether that be good, bad, or neutral, mm -hmm. just something that stands out to you? Let me think about that. Oh, so good experience. Um, I remember this one time I had this old this coworker that doesn't work there anymore, but we would always joke around. And I don't know if you remember the the game in middle school where like you you take your your hand and you make a circle and you have your fingers and you like if you look at the circle you punch somebody in the arm. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
So we, no. we would always play this game and riding around on forklifts, um, we would, you know, we would just do like, like a drive-by of that basically. And if, and you, if you looked at it, you know, we would never punch each other, but we would just be like, oh, you got, damn it. And <laughs> that game must have went on for like almost three or four months between like me and like 10 other people from different shifts. And we, were, we would find ways that we could just get each other. Like where we'd be standing at the microwaves and we'd just like hang our hand on the microwave and be like, oh, damn it, you got me. <laughs> um, so that was like one of the, I guess one of the good memories that I have. It was just because there, there was just so much, so much joking around. Um, I remember bad memory was I was working dock and it's, it's kind of funny to think about these little moments that kind of that you cling to or, or maybe you you kind of have to right if you're working in what could sometimes be a very demanding kind of environment it's it's like if you don't have the camaraderie with with your coworkers, it's like it's it, it'll be that much harder to to get through what you have to get through. But I wonder, um, in your relationship building with your coworkers and things like that, I would imagine that talks about organizing or or something like that as a union come up. Um, so have you had those kind of conversations? Kind of uh, see them make their way through the through the different groups, and if so, like how. How does Amazon respond to people who try to organize? Yeah, I've had the conversation a few times with, with people. It's um, it's honestly kind of hard to because I find a lot of people aren't too aware what unions are, um, mm. what they can do, and like what we as employees have to do to actually get one and, and then at that point then keep one. Um, like I, I grew up with my dad, he's in a union. Um, his dad, you know, my grandpa, he, he was in a union. And so I, I grew up with the understanding of what unions are, what they're capable of doing and what people who are in unions do to keep them and some of the struggles that they go through. And so when I when I talk about unions, sometimes people would be like, "Well, if, if we if we really needed a union, then Amazon would give us one." And well. it's like, well, <laughs> not exactly how it works. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or nope. You know, even people just are like, "Well, why why do we need higher wages?" Like, it's like, well, because we don't make enough. But have we earned it? It's not about have we earned it? It's about, it's what's just like, you want to, you want a job, right? And you want to keep a job. Well, maybe you would keep the job longer if you got paid more. Maybe you would keep the job longer if you had better benefits, you know, where you don't have to pay so much just to have medical health, you know, like vision, dental, you know, like a union, you could probably pay like $5 a month mm -hmm. instead of, close to $50 or more just saying mm. and so 
a lot of it is like having to raise, I guess, like political consciousness, just, just totally. understanding like what, what is the situation and what are the potential solutions that in itself is the first struggle. If you can get people on board just to say like, do you know what a union is? Yeah. Higher wages, better benefits. That's in itself is an accomplishment. Then the conversation can go places. Cause then it's like, okay, well, how do we get that? It's like, okay, well now we got to talk to each other. We have to you know, talk to other people. We have to get them to talk to other people. We have to make a list of what we want. And then we have to go from there and we have to then bring it to management and so on and so on and so on and a lot of people are like that sounds like a lot of work it's like well yeah it is a lot of work but if you want a difference you have to you have to do something it's just not going to be given to you and so i've 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 been able to get people to like understand the need for a union the possibilities of having one but with Amazon having such a high turnover, people don't really see themselves mm. as long-term. And so they're like, well, what's the point? Mm. I'm only going to be here for like a year. And so getting beyond the just the conversation of, like, okay, I understand what a union is now. That's in itself a whole other struggle. And Amazon, in terms of how they... I guess how they perceive unions, how they look at organizing. They, they explicitly say like, they're 100% against unions because it's against our work culture, which is, you know, being able to adapt new policies and try things and grow as a company. Whereas if you're a union, you have to then, any policy change you make, you have to then have your employees vote on it. You have to then bring it to different, you know, governing bodies within the company, a third party union, and Amazon just doesn't want to deal with that. So they actually will train their managers on how to spot potential organizing and how to de-escalate people who are trying to organize. Mm. Yeah, they're not very pro-union because it pretty much goes against everything that allows them to be the company they are. You would think they, you know, if, if they really had employees best interest in mind, they, they wouldn't shy away from something that would guarantee them, you know, the, the employees, a livable wage, safe working conditions. <laughs> like you would think that, but that's just kind of a given. So it, it just goes to show what, what really their motivations are. Yeah. I mean, if it, if their concerns went anywhere beyond profit margins, they would also be uh, not trying to ignore the fact that their warehouses are contributing to the awful air quality that are hurting the communities in the Inland Empire that live around the warehouses. And they would be taking steps beyond advertising. They're trying to move towards a greener future by whatever. I forget what the ad is, but it's just, feel so disingenuine when you hear that ad of them saying, you know, we're working to, you know, electrify our fleet and I really care about climate change because my kids and then you hear about what's happening in their warehouses and what's happening in the communities that are around the warehouses. It's just, mm -hmm. there's that, such I a disconnect. It, 
really funny because the company says that they're trying to um, be like zero emissions like 10 years before the Paris Agreement and in all aspects of their of their company. But then one thing that they overlook is how their employees get to work and most of their employees drive alone and these places are located in the middle of nowhere because i mean you're not going to really want to live next to a, a logistics building it's, it's noisy it's, it smells like exhaust and there's people coming and going all the time and so for amazon to say like oh yeah we're going to be zero emissions 10 years before the paris agreement it's like well how about getting your employees to work more efficiently where instead of having to build these large parking facilities to stay you can accommodate hundreds of people why not offer shuttles make them zero emission shuttles figure out ways to make better transportation networks with the local transportation agencies you know with uber with lyft make better contracts and if they can then i think yeah then they can say that we're gonna we're gonna beat the Paris Agreement by 10 years, but it goes beyond just their business. It has to also be there how their employees are getting to work. Well, thank you, Sean, so much for taking the time to speak with us today about your experiences. We here at Suburban Connections really appreciate um, you sharing your knowledge and helping us become more aware as planners and community members. Before we go, is there anything else mm -hmm. you would like to add or share with us? One thing I'd like to add, and this kind of goes back to, I guess, how Amazon impacts our communities. Like, think about how how you're buying and where you're buying. You know, as, as we understand, our tax dollars go back to the city. You know, every, every purchase that we make helps benefit our communities with the sales tax that we create. When you buy from Amazon, you completely you completely bypass the local sales tax benefits, and what ends up happening is you you'll buy from this corporation, and those products will come from disadvantaged communities that have a lot of real estate being taken up by this corporation. And other corporations like it, and all those tax dollars for those purchases will not go to the city in which those products came from. They're going to go to the state. And then the state's going to divvy out those taxes based upon need, based upon population. So when you're buying online, you're actually, you're not benefiting your own community. It's honestly best to think, you know, can I, can I wait a few days? Can I just, you know, make the trip down the street and go buy it? for maybe $3 more because that additional little bit you pay could actually help employ people in your community, could actually help bring local tax revenue that can then help your streets. It could help your parks. It could help so many different things. But when we think of the convenience of just buying with Amazon, a bigger picture is our local communities are hurting and the local you know, family-owned businesses are suffering because they can't keep up with these retail giants like Amazon and others. So just think about how you how you buy. That is a good reminder, especially with the holidays coming up.
support local business, support black owned businesses, support women run businesses. There's plenty of other options. Might not be as fast and might be a little bit more expensive, but the ripple effect will be much less or benefit communities more.